as Noah mentioned a moment ago, we are in a study we're calling Loveology, uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about love, marriage, relationships, sex, dating. And we're kind of turning a corner a little bit tonight as we get to the, uh, the latter half of this study, um, where we're not going to be necessarily talking just about romantic relationships, but also just about uh, issues of sexuality, of gender in our culture and society. And uh, we will enter into a couple of hard topics um, that I think are very important for us to talk about. One tonight being the idea of, and then act, and what does it mean for God uh, to have made us and designed us as men and women. And then after fall break, we'll come back and we'll look at uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. And then we'll look at transgender identity after that um, to kind of begin to wrap out the semester. So very, very light, very easy subjects we'll talk about the, the last bit of the semester. Um, you know, but the reason we're doing this is because I really, I mean, honestly, as our culture, um, you know, is very confused about a lot of this kind of stuff. I think it's very important for us, whether you're a Christian in this room or not, uh, to see what the Bible has to say about these things, uh, to see how not only we need the Bible's truth in these situations, but also to see how we, you know, as Christians, if you're a Christian here, can walk both with grace and truth through these situations. Because, I mean, our culture is not shying away from these kind of questions. I don't think we should shy away from these questions in the church as well. And so that's kind of what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. We want to equip you in some ways to think through these issues. Um, You may not agree with everything that I say on all these issues, and that's okay. Um, We have a lot of room to disagree on some of this stuff. Um, But I want us to look at what the Bible has to say and to wrestle with some of these things. And if you ever have any questions, if you ever, you know, need more insight, whatever, I'm always up for talking uh, about these things. You know, uh, girls, Haley's also always up for talking about these things. Um, But, I mean... We want to discuss some of this stuff because it's very important, very vital for us. So tonight we're going to be looking at the issue of men and women and what does that mean. Um, And really, like I mentioned, our culture struggles with with this idea a lot about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be, you know, a woman? So on on one hand, we have, you know, movements that really say, okay, gender is an oppressive thing. That, you know, gender is a social construct that we've kind of been handed down over the years. So we shouldn't even teach our kids that they're a boy or they're a girl, that there's this idea of gender fluidity and that we, we just kind of need to get rid of gender, you know, and we'll get more to that in the transgender talk in a few weeks. Um, we have this, that idea, but then we have on the other side, we have, you know, pastors and ministry leaders who, you know, in the past couple of days, if you kept up with things on social media, make statements about women who are leaders in ministry saying that you know, because they're a woman, they shouldn't preach and they should go home, whatever that means, you know, and I have a lot of thoughts about the arrogance in that statement um, and the lack of the heart of God in that statement. But we have both on both sides these issues. And so we have a real, you know, firm or unfirm, you know, a weak understanding, I think, of what it really means for God to have created us as men and women. And so tonight we're going to look at a little bit of that. And I understand this is a controversial issue. And really, even besides that, it may bring a lot of baggage. You know, maybe you're a girl in here that you, you feel like you get a lot of weird glances and like judgment because you're like an engineering major in your class. For like, when I was a civil engineering major, it was like 30 dudes and like two girls in there. You know, and maybe you feel kind of ostracized in that way. Uh, number one, if you're a girl engineer, like, that's awesome. Do that. Be a great engineer, okay? You know, but maybe you're a dude and you're like me and you suck at sports. And so you sometimes get looked down on because you suck at sports, you know, and you like more to, to play guitar and like, you know, read than play sports. You know, so like we have all these stereotypes in our culture that some are just very unhealthy. And we want to unpack a little bit of that. Nothing, not there's anything wrong with being good at sports, by the way. I'm just not good at it, okay? Um, Joseph Seal can tell you all about being good at sports, all right? So, um, but we have these issues and confusion. So I want to really see three things, or excuse me, four things tonight. 
we want to look at when it comes to uh, the issue or the topic of men and women and what it means to be made as a man or a woman, okay? So, first thing we're going to see tonight, and we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But first thing we want to see is this. It's number one in your points. That men and women are created equal but unique. That were created equal but unique. And to show this, let's look at Genesis 1. Look at verses 27 through 28. We've been in Genesis 1 a lot the past semester here because Genesis 1 through 3 is really given as a template for much of creation, much of the world, especially human relationships and marriage and just men and women in general. But it doesn't stop even this week. So look at verse 27. This is kind of in the creation account. Once God gets done creating everything else, he's kind of gotten to the point where he's going to create man and woman. And we see in verse 27 this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. So a few things I want to point out there, even as we get started tonight, is this. Number one, we see both men and women are made in the image of God. We could do a whole series on what that means, but really to be made in the image of God means two things. It means that we all have a unique connection to God, that we're made in his image, we're made for a relationship with him. But also we have a unique reflection of God, that being made in God's image means that we can reflect some of who God is, even in the way that we live, the way that we relate in society. And everybody is made in the image of God, every person. Every person, no matter how um, you know, valuable or quote-unquote unviable they are to society, they are made in the image of God. They have inherent worth and value, including all men and all women. And, but also look in those verses. Both men and women are given this call that we've talked about to fill the earth and subdue it. They're both given the command to be fruitful and to multiply. And there, there's an equality here from the very beginning that we see. And so one thing I want to point out very early on is that from the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible upholds women as equal with men, and it empowers them to pursue their calling in the world. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. Really, the early church was one of the first groups in society to uphold and empower women to be equal with men in society. And the Bible was consistent in that in every way. But obviously, men and women are not completely the same. We're different, right? We're, we're unique in many ways. Obviously, physically, we're different. Like, me and Haley are going to go and find out in a few weeks um, what our gender of our baby is. We're really excited about that to see what it's going to be. Um, but, I mean, it's pretty easy to find out real quick if it's a boy or if it's a girl, okay? The, the sonogram doesn't really take much to figure that out, okay? So, we're physically different, but we have other differences as well, right? Part of God's design. But the part of the problem is that our culture has superimposed so many definitions of what it means to be a man, and what it means to be a woman. So look with me, if you will. Skip down um, into chapter 2 of Genesis. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, this is the creation account being, you know, kind of, it's the, Genesis 1 is 30,000 foot, then Genesis 2 is like on the ground of, uh, of creation, okay? So look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. Let's go 18 to 24 and see yet again more of this description of God creating man and woman. So verse 18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens um, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want to point out a few differences here we see between Adam and Eve, which we want to remember, they're prototypes for all of humanity, men and women, okay? So notice a few things about Adam's relationship to Eve, all right? Easy ones, right? Adam was created first, and in Hebrew culture, the firstborn signifies inherent responsibility and leadership. Also notice that Eve was made from Adam, from his rib. If you've been to a wedding, the pastor's probably said, you know, Eve was made from Adam, not from his head to be over him, not from his foot to be trampled by him, but from his rib to be an equal, you know. I'm not sure if there's a lot, you know, maybe reading too much into that, but it sounds really nice, right? So um, made from his rib, okay? Um, and there's truth in that statement, the rib thing, I don't know. All right, all right but um, and then we have that Adam names Eve. He says that she will be called woman, which is really cool because the Hebrew word for man is ish, all right, which is a great word, ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. So you have ish and you have isha. So even Eve being woman, she is so directly connected to Adam and they are so connected in their humanity that it's ish and isha, okay? So it's kind of a fun fact. But even at the end of Genesis 2, Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention this. In Hebrew culture, naming someone also is a sign of leadership and responsibility. But then at the end of Genesis 2, what we just read, notice how when they kind of, when God zooms out in this picture and says, okay, look at this picture of Adam and Eve, but also this is the reason. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. Notice who's the one doing the leaving and the holding fast. It's the man, right? The man is the one who's leaving his, his family to take a wife. So if Genesis then is a paradigm for especially marriage relationships, then we see a few specific things in here. Specifically this, that men have a calling from God to lead in a relationship, in romantic and marriage relationships. Now before you jump on me and, and you know, and critique me of being, you know, uh, what was that word? Being a, uh, do what? What'd y'all say? Wow, they don't want to repeat it now. Whatever y'all said, you're thinking, okay, yeah, before you accuse me of that, listen, okay, if you were here Sunday, what did Jesus define being a leader as? Someone who serves, right? Remember Mark 10, we saw Jesus say that for the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we talk about men having this calling of leadership, we're not talking about domination, we're not talking about abuse, you know, abusing your authority. We're not talking about bossing around. We're talking about laying down your life for a woman. We're talking about serving, all right? If you look at Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, you know, what happens when God goes looking for somebody to talk about the issue? He doesn't go to Eve, even though Eve technically was the one who ate the fruit. Who's he go to? He goes to Adam, right? He says, well, he says what have you done? It's not because Eve was just off the hook, but he goes to Adam because Adam had this inherent kind of responsibility, Right? So leadership is responsibility lead to lead action, to take responsibility, not to boss around. Right? It's to, it's to nurture, it's to care for, it's to take action. It's not any way to domineer and to dominate. All right? But also, and we'll get more to that in a minute, but uh, notice also the important role that Eve has. Okay? Um, because right there in those verses, God says it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for Ish to be alone. He gives him a Isha. 
to give them woman. Because really, man alone wasn't enough. You know, Adam is standing before this great wilderness of creation, ready, and just it's brimming with potential to be, you know, used for creative activity. But God says, no, that man alone by himself is not enough. He needs someone else with him. He needs a woman. He needs a, a helper. But that word helper, we mentioned this before, doesn't mean like assistant. All right, that word helper is ezer. That word ezer is the same word used for God in other parts of the Old Testament to talk about a helper. And it's the kind of helper that if you don't have that person come help you, you're going to fail. Like everything's going to blow up. Like when God comes to be an ezer for Israel, it's because they need him. Like is absolute necessity. So that word ezer is not a, not a helper or like a helpmate or a secretary. It's like, help me. Like I need help. Like if, if, if I don't have this help, this is all going to go south really quickly. That's the kind of help that we're talking about when Eve is help. So, so in every way, both in marriage and every other part of society, women are indispensable. That women are needed by men, men need women. Men need the insight and perspective of women. And when they neglect it, they neglect the whole half of God's design for how society and how every bit of the world is supposed to work. Right? Men need the perspective and input of women and, and their participation. So, so, but in Genesis 2, we do see a few more differences as well. Like, look at some other things in, there, in here. We see that men and women have special kind of complementary roles, that they complement each other. Um, men have a special connection to work. Adam was called to work the garden. You know, women have a special calling in nurturing as a mom. Like, Eve is called in Genesis 3 the, the mother of all living. Not that means you have to be a mom if you're a woman, but it's a, it's a call that women have. Like, I'm never going to have a baby. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to work. Okay. Have a baby, like physically. I am having a baby with Haley, okay? Uh, all right, so, um, but, but notice also that both men and women are called to work and family. Both men and women, both Adam and Eve were given the call to fill the earth and subdue it. They're both given this call to work. And both Adam and Eve are given the call to family to be fruitful and multiply. So they work together in this way. They complement each other. It's just that men have a special calling to lead the way in that. It's not any way an authoritarian idea, but it's a complementary idea. Okay, but we see this go south really quickly in Genesis 3. So look at Genesis 3. This is our second point. Is that, yes, men and women are created equal but unique. But number two, tension between men and women is part of the curse of sin. Go down to Genesis 3. Look at verse 8 with me. Start in verse 8. And this is Adam and Eve. After, they, after Adam and Eve have both eaten the fruit. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. Notice how he's accusing like two people. He's accusing both Eve and God at the same time. The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God, and then now skip down to verse 16, if you will. We'll skip the stuff with the serpent. Um, verse 16 says this. Well, actually, hold on. So this says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now verse 16, excuse me. Verse 16 here. This is God saying to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And look at this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. All right, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And we see very early on in Genesis 3 that sin wrecks 
the relationship between men and women. There's a lot of collateral damage for, in both sides of this thing. We see that the first sin, honestly, the first sin resulted because of Adam's passivity. That Adam was passive. He didn't lead Eve well. He didn't lead his wife well to not eat from the fruit. But then we see that God's curse on Eve is that her desire shall be contrary to her husband and he will rule over her. So this means two things. It means what sin does to men is this. Sin distorts manhood by making uh, men either have a tendency to be domineering or to be passive. That men have a simple tendency to maybe dominate, to objectify women, to subjugate them, to try to put themselves in authority um, in an unqualified way above women. Or they have a tendency, which I think more men have this tendency, to be passive, right? To not lead well, you know, not take responsibility for themselves, not take responsibility for those around them, but to be passive. And that's one effect of sin. And then sin distorts women by giving them a sinful tendency to be critical and controlling with men. And instead of respecting and encouraging men, a sinful tendency can happen that they seek to undermine and weaken men. I'm not saying that's always the case, but that's what sin does to both men and women. It distorts our manhood and our womanhood. And we see that in Genesis 3. And we really see it all over our society, right? Even especially in marriages, we can see that a lot. So what's the solution to that problem? Well, the easy answer is the solution is the gospel, that Jesus comes to reverse the curse. He comes to really make all things new, to take what God designed for men and women to be and to restore it. But what's one specific beautiful way we see that played out for all the world to see? We see that in marriage, specifically. And we see it in the church. We'll get to the church in a minute. The first one we see is in marriage. So look at point three with me. Because the way men, when, when, wow. the way men and women relate in marriage reflects the gospel. So take in your Bible with me and go to Ephesians 5. So go way over to Ephesians 5. We looked at this briefly a few weeks ago. We're going to look at it one more time. We go to Ephesians 5, start in verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. This is Paul teaching about marriage to the church in Ephesus in a Greco-Roman culture. He's explaining uh, what marriage should look like in a Christian household. And these verses are beautiful, but also there's some controversy here I want us to unpack for a second, maybe understand. So let's go to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Paul says this, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A lot in there, but a few things I want to point out. is First is this, is that when it comes to a Christ-centered marriage, a Christ-centered, gospel-centered marriage begins with mutual submission to Jesus. 
before we start talking about submission in other ways, it begins with a mutual submission to Jesus, where both husbands and wives submit to Jesus in all of their lives, including their marriage. All right? You know, that means that both husbands and wives look to each other and they say, how can I love this person the way that Christ has loved me? How can I serve them in the way that Jesus has served me? And when a married couple view themselves as a team, and when they view themselves or view each other in a way that's trying to outserve each other, if they're always trying to serve each other better than the other person, almost competing in that way, that's a very healthy place to be. That's a very healthy way to start a marriage, is to seek to outserve each other and submit to Christ in that way by submitting in marriage. So we see that. But then when, when Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, he doesn't mean, like we've already seen, he doesn't mean dominate, he doesn't mean boss around, he doesn't mean you abuse authority, but he means this. He means to respect him and to allow him to lead. Allow him to lead in their home, in their family. Not to control him or to demean him, you know? And I know in our society that that idea of submission sounds like a dirty word. But really, we're all called to submit to people in life. Like, you know, in Ephesians 5, children are called to submit to parents. You know, the church members are called to submit to its elders. Citizens are called to submit to government. We're called to submit to Jesus. So submission isn't about value, like one person's more valuable than the other. It's just about order in the way that God has designed things. But the real scandal in these verses is not that Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. The real scandal is that Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And the reason I mean that is this, is that in that culture at that time, men didn't view their wives as like an equal partner. Men viewed their wives more as just the, the person to bear their children. They were just there to kind of have kids, to kind of carry on the family name. But Paul calls them not to just kind of deal with their wives and, you know, and get them pregnant so they can have more babies. But no, he says, I want you to love your wives, not just not like in a romantic way, but to love them as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He died for the church, right? He died for the church. So to love your wife as Christ loved the church is to put her needs above your own, to sacrifice for her, to empower her in her talents and her gifts, is to die and lay down your life for her. And that's a powerful picture. That's why the husbands get twice as much teaching as the women, if you notice that. They get way more input. Number one, because we need it more. We need to hear that, you know. But number two, because they need this instruction, because they're called to lead and lay down their lives, you know. And this isn't something that each uh, husband and wife like bosses each other into. It's not like, you know, a woman says, we're supposed to lead. And the husband says, well, you're supposed to submit. Like girls, if your future husband ever tells you like, hey, woman, submit, you can tell them, hey, man, die. You know, because that's the idea, right? He's supposed to die to himself. You know, so if, if you ever had that conversation, t- say, hey, my college pastor said that, okay? That's the idea. That the man is dying for his wife. I thought you'd like that, okay? So you're, you're welcome. All right. I actually didn't get that. I, I, came, I got that from another sermon I heard a while ago, but, um, but I thought it was pretty good. Okay, so, all right, but here's the thing. In living this way, a couple is a living picture of the gospel. All right, they're a living picture of the way that God has taken even the curse between man and woman, and he's restoring it. Right? He's making things right. He's bringing the gospel and bringing life into men and women relationships in a unique way. Because that, that idea of submission may sound offensive, right? But think about this. God himself submits. God submits. You're like, what do you mean? Think about the Trinity, that Jesus himself submits to God the Father, that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, not my will, but your will be done, that even Jesus himself submits to the Father, that that submission has nothing to do with value, right? Has nothing to do with value at all. And honestly, what woman would not be okay submitting and respecting to the leadership of a man who loves her, who cares for her, who's willing to lay down his life for her every day, right? That's a beautiful thing. And what man would want to sacrifice and lay down his life for a woman who respects him, who encourages him, who allows him to lead? 
Like, those are beautiful pictures of how God has designed the home to work and designed marriage to work, right? And when couples live this way, it reflects the gospel, and society notices, right? They notice when this kind of loving submission, loving respect and encouragement and seeking to outserve the other person, when they see that, the world takes notice. It's a beautiful thing, all right? But we got to remember that we're talking about within marriage, not all of society, right? We're not talking about all of society at all because the Bible empowers both men and women to contribute to society at large, right? Both of them. And many of our stereotypes about men and women, they don't come from the Bible. They come from post-industrial culture, you know, because for a long time, really up until raised together, they worked together, right? Consider the Proverbs 31 woman. Like the Proverbs 31 woman is not this kind of flowery roses kind of you know, woman. That woman works hard. Like consider her, like she, she's an entrepreneur. She's a real estate investor. She's a justice advocate. She's a loving mother and a fashion mogul who gets up before the sun comes up to work. That, that, that lady is working hard. There's no mention of an apron in the Proverbs 31 woman, all right? She's a hard worker. That lady is a boss, okay? All right? It's awesome, all right? But the Bible says nothing about a woman not being a CEO, all right? But it also doesn't say the highest form of godliness is for a woman to be a stay-at-home mom, right? Which being a stay-at-home mom is awesome. That's a high calling. It's a beautiful thing. But the Bible doesn't project that onto women. It gives women and men freedom to live out their callings in society, all right? It gives them freedom in that way. It gives us a lot of flexibility, too, in how that looks in the home, right? Lots of flexibility, all right? So, so much of what we have in society is more stereotypes from culture, not from the Bible, all right? The last thing we want to see tonight is this. It's number four, is that men and women in the church have complementary roles, all right? Complementary roles. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. And right, just to let you know, that there's four schools of thought when it comes to men and women in the church and how they relate and how they have roles. Four main schools of thought. Um, number one is, is feminism, all right? Um, and I don't mean like all of feminism, like the kind of feminism that got women the right to vote. That's, that's awesome. I'm talking about like modern feminism where basically they view men as like this oppressive force to be overthrown. You know, that idea of feminism where men can't be trusted, that women have to fight for power over men. I'm talking about that kind of feminism, all right? That's an unhealthy thing in the church, all right? But then on the other side, we have patriarchy. Or we have feminism, but then we have patriarchy on the other side where men say that all women must, must always be under the authority of a man at every point in their life, whether it's her dad at first, then her husband, and if her husband passes away, then it's like her son or like grandfather. Like, and that's another completely unhealthy and unbiblical idea. So on the two ends of that, we have patriarchy and we have feminism, but in the middle, we have two other ideas, all right? We have two words. One is called egalitarianism. All right, egali- don't ask me to spell that. Well, I can, but just do your best, all right? But egalitarianism, and that's this, okay? Egalitarianism believes that men and women are equal, which we also believe, you know, what we believe in the church, but men and women are equal, and in New Testament times, both men and women can serve in every role of the church, including pastor, including everything like that. That would be the egalitarian view. All right, I have some really good friends that are egalitarians. I love and respect them. Awesome people. Lots of amazing churches are that way. But then we also have complementarian or complementarianism. It's a big word. I'm dropping some deep theology, theology words tonight. But with the complementarianism, and that is this, is that men and women are also equal in value, absolutely. They're equal in gifting. They're equal in ability. But they have complementing in different roles in the church. You know, and specifically, complementarians believe that the office of elder or overseer or what we would call in the Baptist church as pastor, we believe that that is reserved for, for men, for qualified men. That's why we have 
all men pastors. So we at Alberta, we're a, a, a complementarian church in that way that we believe that men, that qualified men are reserved for the office of pastor. Let me make a case for that for a minute, for a second, all right? Hear me out. Case for male pastors. First off, we've seen in Genesis 1 through 3, Adam's role in leadership, right? That male senior leadership is a demonstration of God's design for men and women, for men to lead, protect, and empower the church, especially women, to grow in their gifts and callings. But think about the 12 disciples, all right? The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles who began the church were all men. And Jesus surely didn't choose 12 men because he was worried about upsetting the culture of the time, right? He did a lot of stuff to upset the culture at the time, right? So he didn't choose 12 men just because it was safe, all right? But he chose 12 men, I believe, to demonstrate future senior leadership in the church, all right? Look at the New Testament. There's no example of a woman being a senior pastor, an elder in that sense. Lots of other examples we'll get to in a second about them serving, but there's no examples of them being a senior pastor, all right? Um, But lots of examples of men. And also consider consider 1 Timothy 3, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But 1 Timothy 3, an elder in that sense, the word is elder or overseer. They mean the same thing. In the Baptist church, we call them pastors. Um, But an elder is described as a qualified man. I'm using that word qualified very intentionally. I'll say why in a second. But qualified man, he's described as a husband of one wife. All right? A husband of one one wife. Now, that doesn't mean that any man has the authority to lead in the church. That doesn't mean that any man has the authority, you know, to to lead over a woman in the church. It means that pastors are qualified men. It's way, it's more about character. It's not just about being a man, you know, like just being a man doesn't give you any authority to lead over a woman in the church. It doesn't give you any authority at all. Because if you look at 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy, and therefore us, he tells us to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, younger men as fathers, sorry, older men as fathers, and younger men as brothers. That we're supposed to relate as family, as brothers and sisters in Jesus. Anytime you see the word brothers in the Bible, in the New Testament, 99% of the time that's the word adelphoi, which really means brothers and sisters. It's speaking to the whole family of God. All right, that we treat each other as brothers and as sisters. And so just because you're a man doesn't give you any ability or any right to say that you have some authority over a woman. You're being a jerk if you think that way. All right? That's not the point. It's qualified men for the role of pastor. Because here's the thing. We have so many great examples of women leading in the Bible. Let me just give you a few quickly, a quick summary because we're running out of time. All right? um, in the Old Testament, think about Deborah. Deborah was a judge in Israel. She was a leader in Israel. That meant that she was chosen by God to have the highest form of leadership in the entire country. And that the commander of the army at that time said to her, he's like, Deborah, if you don't go to battle with me, I ain't going. Like, if you're not there, we're going to lose. Like, we need you there. All right, so Deborah had the highest form of leadership in the country. Consider Esther. All right, Esther saved an entire population of Jews in Syria, sorry, in, um, in Persia, sorry, um, from genocide. That she worked alongside her, uh, her uncle Mordecai to save the, the Jewish people, right? We see a beautiful picture of men and women working equally together to save people in that sense. So we have, that's a short list with so many more. But consider the New Testament, right? Luke 8 tells us that many women became disciples of Jesus. They traveled around with Jesus and they provided for him during his ministry. Um, consider Mary Magdalene. She was the very first person to see the resurrected Jesus. She was the first evangelist in the Bible that Jesus told her to go tell the apostles, the disciples, that he was resurrected. And at that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even trusted in court. 
They wouldn't even accept a woman to give testimony in court, but yet a woman and women are the first witness to the resurrected Jesus. They're the first evangelists. They're the first preachers, if you will, in the Bible in that sense. All right? Consider Priscilla um, in the New Testament, mentioned in Romans 16. She, she ministered alongside her husband, Aquila, and Priscilla and Aquila, who Priscilla is always mentioned first most of the time, she personally discipled an apostle. She personally discipled Apollos. All right, consider Phoebe mentioned in Romans 16. She's called a servant of the church in Romans 16. That shows some kind of official position. We're not sure what, but she was a servant of the church. And Phoebe probably is the reason we have the book of Romans today. She probably bought, brought the book of Romans to the church in Rome so that it could be read there. She was the person Paul trusted to get the book of Romans to the church in Rome. All right. Consider Junia, mentioned in Romans 16, 7. She's mentioned as outstanding among the apostles. Doesn't mean she necessarily was an apostle, but it shows she was a great example and leader in church planning. All right. Also consider the entire book of Romans 16. When Paul ends his letter in Romans, he mentions 29 people as a greeting. Of the 29 people, 10 of them are women, which is a big deal for that time. But of the 10 women, seven are mentioned as great examples in ministry. Seven of them are mentioned as great examples for their work in ministry. So without the work of, of women in the early church, who knows where we'd be today? Who knows where the gospel wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten to without the work of women in the church? So the picture through the New Testament is that men and women absolutely should serve together in equal roles in the church with the only exception being the office of pastor or elder is reserved for men. But remember, like Genesis 1 says, that it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for men to even lead alone. That men leading in the church need the counsel and involvement and participation of women in order to lead well. We'd be real messed up today if we just suddenly stopped having any woman to serve in Alberta Baptist Church. I mean, we'd be be in a dark place. I don't know where we'd be today without the the faithful women who are serving and leading in ministry in this church, right? We need that, all right? So last thing is this, and we'll begin to wrap up for tonight. But what about that question, those verses in like 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, where when Paul says things like, you know, he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church, you know, over a man, you know, or he tells women to stay quiet in church, you know, and ask their husbands at home. What about that stuff? All right. Well, that's a really long conversation we can have. I'm going to give you a brief idea of it right now to kind of just um, help maybe think through some of those things. All right. First thing is to remember this. We always interpret the Bible with the Bible. Right? We never take a verse by itself and build some kind of theology on top of that. All right? We always interpret the Bible in the big picture of the Bible. So in light of everything we've seen, right, there's got to be more nuance in those verses than just blanket statements that Paul is making. All right? It can't work that way. Because Paul's prohibitions against women, they aren't for every woman in the church of all time. All right? they're, they're not. If you do some studying about the context of that time, You'll find there were, there were likely women in the church that Paul is addressing who were being disruptive in church. They had given in to heresy, and they were trying to overtake the leaders of the church. And you got to remember at this time that the New Testament wasn't completely written, that we, they didn't have the Bible in the sense that we do today. So the gospel message and correct doctrine was very fragile at that time. So Paul, if he hears that there's a group of women trying to speak heresy in the church, he's like, we got to shut that down. Uh, that, that cannot happen. That's going to limit the spread of the gospel. So he tells these women to be quiet. All right? He tells them to be quiet. But also, if you were to read 1 Timothy and go to 1 Timothy 3, when Paul starts talking about elders in the church, Paul says that elders who are qualified men need to be gifted in teaching. He mentions teaching in that description. 
And that's important because I think what Paul is doing, he's connecting teaching and authority together. All right? He's not just talking about teaching just for the sake of teaching. He's connecting teaching and authority together. So one of the primary ways an elder or a pastor leads in the church is through teaching God's word. Honestly, for me as a pastor, for Colby and Keith as pastors, that's one of the main ways we shepherd the church is through teaching as an elder, through teaching as a pastor. So when Paul goes on to say things like, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he's not making a blanket statement um, that no woman can ever teach in the church or even teach men. Because in other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul commands that. He says it's good. Like in, uh, in Titus 2, he says older women should teach younger women. But also, he talks about Timothy being taught by his mother and grandmother. But even outside of the home, we have Priscilla who discipled Apollos. So we have all these pictures of women teaching and teaching God's word in the church, all right? It's not a blanket statement. But instead, what Paul is saying, I think, is that women should not teach in an authoritative position as an elder in the church, right? Not teaching in general, but teaching in an authoritative position as an elder because that's limited to man. And then Paul references Genesis to kind of give support for that. He ties it all the way back to Genesis 1. So Paul is simply telling these women to listen quietly and everyone else in the church to listen quietly and reminding them of God's design for men and women. All right, what about 1 Corinthians 14? All right, when Paul talks about um, that women should stay quiet and learn from their husbands at home, all right? Well, we've got to remember this. That, um, 1 Corinthians 14, context is important because if that context is in 1 Corinthians 14. It's all about interpreting prophecy. Paul is describing orderly worship and how prophecy should be interpreted and dealt with in the church. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that women should be prophesying and speaking in a church service. So when he says that women should be quiet in church, he can't be making a blanket statement because he just told them to speak and prophesy three chapters earlier. All right, so it can't be that. He's not making a blanket statement. So really, there's probably one of two things happening. Either number one, it's a similar group of women teaching heresy, or there were certain married women who were trying to openly criticize their husbands and say their prophecy was, was jacked up during church. Okay, so they're openly criticizing and demeaning their husbands during church. Kind of awkward, all right? So, but that's happening. So yet again, Paul tells these women to be quiet to protect the truth of the gospel. All right, but then he tells Paul, Sorry, then Paul tells the husbands of these women uh, to learn from their husbands at, at home, which seems offensive until you consider this. Women of that time, education was not a priority for them. Many of them didn't have a great education. It was way more swung toward men in favor of men. So a lot of women didn't have the kind of education a man had. So when Paul tells the husbands to teach their wives at home, he's not saying, yeah, that's where they belong, in the home, in the kitchen, making a sandwich. No, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, you've got to love your wives by teaching them and knowing that they're just as valuable to God as you. They need to be trained to get theology and good doctrine because it matters. You need to love them and serve them in that way. He's not telling them to... He's not subjugating women. He's uplifting them as equal and valuable in God's sight, right? He's telling them to love and serve them. He's not making a blanket statement because the New Testament's full of examples of women leading and investing in people and teaching the Bible, all right? So with that, where does that leave us for the rest of tonight? Two things. Guys, what does it mean for us? Well, guys, I want to say this. Lead well and especially set an example in the church, Set an example and empower women in the way that you function in society and especially in the church. Uplift girls in this room, women in our church. Set an example well. Just because you're a man doesn't give you any authority over a woman. Doesn't mean you're entitled to that. But your role as a man is to set an example in faith, in character, in service to others, and to treat women as sisters in the faith. To care for them in that way. And don't be passive, but take responsibility. Take responsibility for the call that you've received 
but also girls. Know this, here at ABC, number one, you're indispensable in this church. But number two, we want you to serve, to use your gifts, and to lead. We want to empower you, not just to serve in the nursery, not just to serve in the cooking team or serve with kids, although those are awesome ministries, but to know that we want you to serve in every part, every ministry of our church. You know, Just because the role of pastor is reserved for, for men doesn't mean you can't be a ministry leader. We want you to lead the ministry here. If you love the Bible, if you want to study theology and doctrine, we want to help you grow in that. If you want to teach the Bible, we want to help you learn to teach the Bible. All right? We want to empower you in that way and encourage you. But also, we want you to encourage men all right? and to help them to set a good example and to lead well in that way. All right? We want you to set the example in that way as well. All right? But for all of us, if we see the big picture of God's design here tonight is that we, men and women are created unique, but we're created differently. We're created with this beautiful picture of working together to work as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, to uplift each other and to uplift the gospel ultimately. All right. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk more about it. Um, I mean, and like I said, some people disagree on this kind of stuff and that's okay, but I want to be kind of upfront and clear about what we believe about this in scripture, but I'd love to talk to you more about it if you have any questions. Okay. But for that tonight, we have three questions on your sheet. I want to give you about 10, 15 minutes to discuss at your groups and then we will wrap up for the evening. Okay. So let me pray for us and then we will be done. Father, we love you. We thank you for the good gift that you've given us of being made in your image as men and women. We know that it's not a mistake, Lord, that you have created us uniquely just the way we are, that we're loved by you and you've given us um, beautiful ways to live out our calling as men and women, both in the society and in the church. I pray that every person in this room, Lord, would feel empowered and uplifted tonight, Father. I pray that your word would, would be, bring freedom, your word would bring um, or grace and empowerment talk about in society. I pray you'd help us even as we, you know, wrestle with a topic that is not very popular to talk about in society today, that you would help us to show grace to each other, grace to ourselves, and help us really just grow, Lord, um, not just in knowledge, but in our ability to love and serve each other, especially love, you know, the opposite gender in our church and really in society and to, to treat them well, to uplift them in a Christ-centered way. We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.